If you have the, your scriptures, please turn to 1 John chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. I want to remind you that this is the inerrant word of God. It is infallible because God will honor his word whatever he chooses to do. He will do. It will work for our good and for his glory. So, dear saints, hear the word of God, since you are the people of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that we're on holy ground this morning. You are with us. You are with us in your spirit. You are with us in your word. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the glory and the majesty of the one who is above all, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, teach us by your Spirit. Help us not to be the same people that we were when we walked through that door today, but when we walk out, we can say that we've had an encounter with a living God who has shown himself through the Word of God. Hear us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm going to talk about one particular doctrine, the doctrine of adoption. Doctrine of adoption. One of the things that we need to do as children of God, that's considering if you have been born again into a living hope through Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, you and I need to act like children of God. God is holy, and he tells us that without holiness, we shall not see God. So it's very important for us not to just say that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is an imperative that we act like we are believers of the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him with our lives. What is the definition for adoption? Well, if you've studied the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, and I think probably most of you have. In fact, I'm not sure I've been in a church where they have studied the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster of Faith, uh, Catechism and, and, uh, as much as you all have. It's rather remarkable, I think. It's wonderful. But in uh, the definition of the doctrine of adoption, the Westminster Shorter Cate Catechism, this is a question, what is adoption? The answer, very short, adoption is an act of God's free grace 
whereby we are received into the number, the church, and have all the rights and privileges as sons and daughters of the living God. If you're a child of God, you've been adopted into his family, and all the promises of God are yours in Christ Jesus. And all the privileges as being a child, a son and daughter of the living God is yours. The question is, what is the motivation for adoption? Oftentimes, um, actually, I think pretty much the same motivation that moves humans to adopt children are the same motivations that we see in, a, in God. What motivates people to adopt other children? There were a number of people in the congregation I served in, in uh, Ramstein, where I served for 15 years, they adopted a lot of children. Some came from the former Soviet Union and some came from China. I haven't kept up with all of them, but as I've scanned Facebook and seen some of the things going on, I see that these children that have been adopted into this Christian, these Christian families have been nurtured in the faith and, the, and really are excelling out there in the world for the cause of Jesus Christ. They adopted them because, for three reasons, I think, had some pity upon them. I mean, if you've ever looked at uh, some places in particular in China where the children are, you would have pity upon them. You would have compassion upon them. You would sense a great deal of love for them. And so that's why a lot of people went to China and went to the former Soviet Union and they adopted these children. Well, why does God adopt us into his family? For the same reason. He has pity upon us. He has compassion upon us. And he has a greater love to a degree beyond anything that we can imagine in terms of agape love or phileo love, brotherly love. This God loves us to a degree that is almost, for us, unimaginable. So the motivation is love. And you see, because a lot is a word that I've, I've misused over the course of my life, probably more than I want to admit. I, I really like ice cream, and I used to say, I, I love ice cream. Well, ice cream is an inanimate thing. I eat that ice cream, it tastes good, but it can't respond to my desires to eat it. But, you see, love that God talks about is a love that is always giving. It's giving. It's not waiting to be received, but as a child of God, we give it out because God gave it out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we also see in 1 John chapter 4, herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, he paid the price. He put his righteousness on us and he took our sins upon him at the cross. In Galatians chapter 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And what did he do? He gave himself for me and for you if you're a child of God. If you're here this morning 
and you don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would not leave this place today without confessing your sin and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'll be here to talk a little bit, always available as long as I'm here, and there are elders here, so don't leave this place if you don't know Christ. And if you know Christ when you leave this place, live a holy life to honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I forgot to mention Romans 5.8. It's a great one. Another one of love. So you might want to look that up as well. But we see the love of God in the Old Testament to begin with, and then we'll move over to the New Testament. But in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel, having received the message from God himself. And Israel wasn't really any better than any of the other nations. They were just as corrupt, just as evil as those nations that surrounded them. And they were called a, a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And so Moses comes to them in the power that God has sent him, and he says to Israel, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you, Israel, because the Lord loves you, and because he will keep his oath that he made to Abraham, which he swore to the fathers, he will redeem you. He loved Israel. But he also made a commitment, a promise to Abraham. What was that promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a, a God unto your children and your children's children. I will bless you that, uh, that your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in heaven. You will be a blessing to all the nations, Abraham, all of them. And I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Abraham, all those things are yours. I say it and it is true and I will execute what I have promised. God always executes what he's promised. Always. All his promises are true and right. And good. That same mindset of love and choosing is certainly a part of the New Testament. Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us. And what? To adopt us into the family of God, to redeem us and then bring us in as sons and daughters of the living God. And, uh, and the new covenant there, because the old covenant is obsolete now. There's a new covenant. That new covenant is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has promised to be with us. Jesus Christ has promised to put his law in our heart, in our hearts and on our minds. Not on tablets of stone. The law of God is right here. The law of God is right here in our hearts. And God, by the Holy Spirit, wants us to live accordingly to the law of God. I just must say to you, I've, I've pastored three churches, and I, I love all three churches. But none of us have arrived, and sometimes we've sloughed off when it comes to the law of God. But please hear me again today. 
the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. It is sweeter than honey, than the honeycomb. It is more precious than all the gold in the world. Some of you are trying to get rich, probably. You want to be reasonably well off. You want all the things. You want to be able to go places, do things, and, and, and live the kind of life that this world says is the kind of life you should have. And God is saying, that's not the kind of life that I want for you. I want you to hear my word. I want you to follow my commands. I want to bless you. You're going out, you're coming in, you're rising up, and you're lying down. I want to do all those things for your well-being because I love you. I love you. One of the passages that really speaks to me, probably shortly after I was converted, and it still speaks very powerfully to me today, because I wasn't in the top three of these uh, entities that have been mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For this is what Paul says, under the power of the Holy Spirit. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made your wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast that you've arrived to a certain understanding. Don't boast about anything. No, don't boast about that you've risen in rank or whatever the case may be. Don't boast about anything. All that you have, all that you are is because God has made you and God is molding you and God is using you for his glory and to his praise. You see, God chooses. I'm amazed that I'm standing here today because I fell in those first three categories about what Paul just read, uh, just gave us and I read. God chooses us. He takes the initiative. He is motivated by love. He's motivated by love. I think of some of those who have preceded us, a lot of them a long time ago, but I, I think of Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the church, but he was converted. I mean, he was a murderer. And Jesus converts him on the road to Damascus. I think of, of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She, she had been married four times, and the one that she was living with at this time was not her husband. And so Jesus talks to her, and in the providence of God, she is irresistibly drawn to Jesus Christ, and she begins to tell others about this one that knows everything about her. And she stops 
worshiping idols and starts worshiping the living God. And I think of Zacchaeus, a, a tax collector who got rich, uh, collecting more taxes than he was supposed to. And then when Jesus went to his house that night, he had a conversion experience. And not only did he give back what he had taken, but he increased the level of giving back to those that he had cheated over the course of time. I don't know exactly how he kept up with all of that, but he did. His life was changed. The woman's life in John 4 was changed. Paul's life was changed. John Newton, who was involved in the African slave trade, was changed. And this old sinner saved by grace before you today has been changed by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. I can't imagine where I would be today without Jesus, but I'm pretty sure it would not be in the church. So God delights. I think of that passage we looked at some weeks ago in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were under the wrath of God. Can you imagine? You see the wrath of God on the cross poured out upon his son, and that's our position at one time. We were dead in our sins. We were under the wrath of God. We were strangers to the covenant promises. We were without God and without hope in this world, but God, who is rich in love and mercy, made us alive in Jesus Christ. Dead, now alive and living for the glory of God. The thing that I think really tells us about the great love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is they delight to change rebels. They delight in changing rebels. I was a rebel. Paul was a rebel. I imagine all of you were rebels at some point in time. But he delights to change your life and give you new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what just, I think moves John to write the way that he writes. He says, behold, that's, that's a command, that's an imperative. That's not something you want to disregard. He says, behold, what manner of love what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Can you imagine that kind of love given to rebels who have, in a, in a sense, cursed God, in a sense, complained about God, all the things that people do, and yet God loves us, and John says... Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. What manner? Again, that's an imperative. Look, see, think about what Paul just said. See, that kind of love is, is foreign. It's foreign to us. It's, it's from a different world. It's otherworldly. It's not like Phileo, brotherly love or agape love but it's a love that has degrees that none of us will ever experience perhaps until we enter glory 
But when we're a recipient of that love, it ought to take our breath away. We ought to be amazed by the fact that this God who created all things out of nothing, who made us in his image, in holiness and righteousness and knowledge, who knit us together while we were yet in our mother's sin, and yet when we went astray, we went our own way, he still loved us and brought himself, brought us to himself because he loved us. We ought to be amazed at that love. I think John Newton wrote about it. The amazing love of God to undeserving sinners, to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, and to receive all the privileges as sons and daughters, and to be heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. Well, there's a little exam I want you to take this morning. And I trust in God's providence you'll pass that exam. Because if you don't pass it, it's an indication perhaps you're not in the flock. There's four things. Four things. How do you know for sure that you're adopted into the family of God? How do you know? Do you just feel like it? Here are four things if you want to take them down. Is there a change in your life? Have you realized a change in your life? Because the scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, the old things, the way that we've been living before we were converted, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new to us. We don't live like we once lived. I think think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, just in in a flash, his life has changed. One who wants to persecute those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would go to Damascus and either incarcerate them or kill them for being followers of Christ. And then you see, him changed and he's called he's called now to be an apostle and he's going to preach to governors and kings and all these other people he's going to bear witness to Jews and Gentiles he's going to go out and Paul says there in Acts chapter 9 not only is he going out but when he goes he is going to be persecuted himself wow what a call how many of us would answer that call and yet We read in the scriptures, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow Jesus. Where does the cross lead Jesus? It leads him to Calvary. To Calvary. To death. The most horrific death anyone could even imagine. And then you you look at exactly what Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. Now, I just want to read this just for a minute because every time I read it, I I think, oh well, most of the time if I'm having difficulty in ministry, I I probably want to stop for a while and recalibrate my ministry and see if I'm doing something wrong, try to correct it. But Paul doesn't do that. If you look at Acts chapter 14, what does he do? He's preaching in Lystra, and they stone him. And I can almost picture my mind. He's over there. He's got all these stones on his body. He's got all the 
the dirt and the grime and everything else, and everybody thinks he's dead, but they, and they leave, but he's not dead. He gets up, and he goes on to Derby. What does he do? He preaches the gospel there, and what does he do after Derby? He returns to Lystra, where they, they stoned him, and he preaches again. How many preachers would do that? I'd probably ask for a, maybe a cruise on the Mediterranean for about six months, eating some fine fish along the way and telling my, those who are working with me, maybe we ought to think this through. This is not working out very well. I don't know anyone. I trust there are Christians, and I'm including myself. I'm not sure anyone could go through what the Apostle Paul went through. Listen to what he writes there in 2 Corinthians this is what he says. And know this. Got to get this a little bit closer. And know that this man was called up into bar. That's the wrong one. I'm sorry, right here. But whatever, whatever else dares, to, but whatever everyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Day and night I was adrift in the sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, oftentimes without food and cold and exposed. And apart from other things, there's that daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. Listen, all those things that he was going through, what was he thinking about? He was thinking about the church. The church. The people of God. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what he went through to preach the gospel. Why? Because he loved Jesus. Because he loved Jesus. And Jesus sent him on a mission. And we all have, maybe not a similar mission, but we're all called to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And what is the promise? I am with you always. I, want to, I may be taking a little bit longer, but I think of, of John Newton, and we, we sing, you know, Amazing Grace is probably sung in every tongue around the world. I think so. But he was involved in the African slave trade, and then Jesus changed his life. What did he do? Did he just say, well, I'm getting out that. I'm going to get another line of work. Well, he did get another line of work. He became a preacher of the gospel. He wrote a number of commentaries, and I, I had some of those, and I gave them to my son-in-law, who is also a PCA pastor. But he also wrote 
not only amazing grace, but so many others. You see, he was changed. He wasn't the same person. He probably never got on the ship again, but he preached the gospel, he wrote songs, and he wrote commentaries, and he is still listened to today around the world as we sing Amazing Grace. The woman at the well, her life was changed. Zacchaeus' life was changed. I guess the question is, has your life changed? Has your life changed? So the one thing is, and I'll try to move reasonably. This is important stuff. The second thing is, do you have a desire to know God? I mean, really to know him. I was reading an autobiography. No, a biography, not an autobiography. On R.C. Sproul. Just, uh, I think Saturday I read a chapter. And he was, I think he was in his first year of college. He was an unbeliever. And then someone was sharing with him the scriptures and, and, uh, and faith. And he came to saving faith in college. And then for two weeks, he forgot his studies, and the grades indicated that he had forgotten his studies. But in terms of his theology in the Bible, he knew that. He made an A in that. He didn't do so well in the other subjects, but for two weeks he did nothing but read all of Scripture almost day and night. He did his Ph.D. work in the Netherlands, and he was asked by Burkauer, I think it was Burkauer, uh, this would be in French, Latin, German, and Dutch. And R.C. Sproul said, well, I don't know much about French. And in reality, he didn't know anything about any of them. <laughs> he admitted that. So every night or every day, he would study in Dutch, and he'd have a dictionary and a translation into English, and he studied from 7 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night. I'm sure he took time to bathroom breaks and to eat something. Wow. Did R.C. Sproul give himself to Christ? What kind of impact has R.C. Sproul made in our lives? When I first saw the holiness of God, I thought, wow, what a guy, what a theologian. And I had him for two classes at Reformed Theological Seminary. And you know, he loved life. He loved baseball. He was a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. He could talk about almost anything, but he loved to talk about theology. And I had him with one course that he stood there and he spoke for three hours without any notes whatsoever on some of the most philosophical things that were going on, particularly in Europe. And they were coming to the States. And the liberalism that hit Europe was starting to hit the states, and he was there. He was a, a master. He understood all the changes that were coming our way. And he started a ministry that has, still has an impact today. So there's got to be a desire to know God, to know him, not just on Sunday mornings or maybe occasionally read your scriptures, read the scriptures, but to really know him and, and say, Lord, 
I want to know you. I'm not, I'm not an apostle. I'm not an R.C. Sproul. But I am a man or woman of God who wants to know you and live for you and die if called upon for you and for your glory and for your kingdom. Know him. As Paul prayed that he might know Christ. Pray that you might have the experience of the Holy Spirit in you. Walk in his ways. Understand his commands. Study his laws and walk therein for, the, for those are laws that are given for our good. Not to keep you from having fun. Sometimes we're so recreationally oriented. Thirdly, a deep sense of sin. A deep sense of our sin. Because we're not perfected yet. This old sinner is not. But we need to spend time on our knees or sometimes we need to prostrate ourselves on the floor and say, oh God, my mind is going at warp speed on things it ought not to be thinking about. My eyes are seeing things that we ought not to focus on. Oh, Lord God, would you change my heart and change the direction in which I'm going? Give me, as Paul says, I don't do those things that I ought to do, and I do those things that I shouldn't do. Shouldn't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Fourthly, do you love the brethren? Or do you just tolerate one another? Do you just see each other on Sunday occasionally? Or do you say, wow, I can't wait to get to church. I want to see Nathan, Leah, all of y'all. I'm not your pastor, I'm temporary here. But the church is the people of God for whom Christ died. The church is important. It's the only institution that will last. I spent 32 years in uniform. The military will not last. This government, German or American or any other government, will not last. There is only one institution that will last for all eternity, and that is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be a part of it. Be fully engaged. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Give to the church. Grow the church. Learn. Do all those things. You've got gifts if you're in the body of Christ. Do you love the body of Christ? Would you die for the body of Christ? I'll conclude with this. I really haven't looked at two and three, but I want to close by reading from 1 John chapter 3. And I hope this sets you off in the best way possible. Beloved, two, beloved God's children. Oh, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Jesus Christ is coming again. If you're a Christian, you're going to see him. You're going to be like him. Can you imagine that? And you're going to be with him for all eternity. This world is passing away. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. But one day, as children of God, we're going to be with Jesus. I'm not interested in seeing presidents or generals or anything like that. The one that drives me is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see him in all of his glory, to his praise and to his honor forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we have dealt with your word and we are privileged. There's a lot of people that don't even know how to read. There's a lot of people that will read anything but the scriptures. There's a lot of people that don't want their lives impacted by what God has to say. They want to keep going down the course that they were on. But Lord, it is a course that is broad and that leads straight to hell. But the path that is narrow is light and it leads to the light of glory, Jesus Christ forever. So Lord, Hear our prayers today. If there's an unbeliever here today, Lord, I pray that he would not or she would not leave before knowing Jesus. Not much else matters for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.